Isaiah 9 verse 6. For a child for a child is born to us, an heir is given us, upon whose shoulders dominion will rest. This one shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Strength of God, Eternal Protector, Champion of Peace. Uh, so we're starting a little Advent series, we started it last week, to explore um, Christian peacemaking, to maybe look at why we're so crap at it. Um, we talked at length last week about Christians on Facebook during the plebiscite <laughs> and uh, how terrible we are at having peaceful discussions and handling conflict well. So we thought this would be a great opportunity, this Advent, to mine the story of the one who was believed to be the Prince of Peace or the Champion of Peace. Uh, Israel had great expectations that Messiah would come and bring peace to the land, to the world, to the cosmos, that Messiah would come and bring heaven and earth together. Uh, and so I'm just going to do a very brief synopsis of last week for those of you who missed it or have forgotten or who just chose not to listen, which is totally understandable. Um, and then we'll build from there. So last week we talked a little bit about how peace is a state, but doesn't really do much to describe the pathway to that state. And if we go back to the Advent story, the story of the land is Israel once again were in exile, but with a brand new feature, uh, they were in exile in their own land. So you've got this little nation who was promised by God that uh, they would be one day they would be great, and one day the whole world would come to know God through them, and they'd be very important, and all these wonderful things would happen. Uh, yet throughout their history, time and time again, they got enslaved and captured and bullied and kicked around. And then at one point, they were doing really well and had lots of gold and camels. And then uh, they got taken away again to a foreign land. And so you find them at the start of the New Testament, kind of in their own land, but under the thumb of another superpower who is taxing them incredibly heavily, who is making life really difficult, who is crucifying a lot of them. Um, and so you've got this nation, which was essentially like throughout its history, the runt of the schoolyard getting kicked around yet again. And over the last few hundred years, they had begun dreaming of a Messiah, one sent by God who would come and bring peace and would finally restore order and the world um, to the way it should be. Most of them um, had this expectation that the Messiah that would come would be like King David, this kind of warrior king who would, through muscles and brute force, uh, rise up an army and overthrow Rome. And the weird thing about Rome was Rome pr promised peace as well. Um, and Rome did bring peace of a sort. There was no warring between nations simply because Rome um, had all the nations under their thumb. And there was, peace, there was peace under Roman rule as long as you didn't stand up against Rome. Um, so as long as you were happy to worship their gods and uh, pay their taxes and uh, have them in your land... Uh, and get crucified every now as, you know, as long as you're okay with the occasional crucifixion of your loved ones, um, you had peace, and it was a small price to pay for aqueducts. So, so Israel had this dream, like most bullied children do, of one day growing enough muscles to kick the crap out of the school bullies, that one day God would come and empower them and send one who would raise an army, and they would... Rome had this amazing army and had this incredible um, um, strength of force and had obliterated everyone. But 
Israel dreamed of one day rising up and taking the sword to Rome and finally bullying the bullies and like laughing at them and um, having them at the point of a sword. And then everything would be right with the world because Israel would be on top. Uh, Jesus, who Christians believe, believe to be Messiah, came along and had, had an entirely different vision of what peace looked like. Um, this is a man who came and told his followers to love their enemies, including the Romans, to refuse to pay an eye for an eye um, and a tooth for a tooth. He said, turn the other cheek. And as you can imagine, to a bunch of people who were dreaming of um, killing the Romans, the idea of praying for them and loving them, it didn't go down that well. And so last week, we kind of like framed this with these two um, visions of peacemaking. Victory and vengeance or reconciliation and restoration. So you can make peace by outmuscling your enemies and having them at the point of a sword and humiliating them, and you have won, and there is no conflict and no war because the people who want to make conflict can't. That's Pax Romana. That's the Roman vision of peace. And that was Israel's vision of peace at this time, by and large. But Jesus came and cast this whole other frame for peace. That enemies would be loved and brought in. That difficult conversations would be had. That peace would be made not by hating and humiliating and destroying um, your enemy at the point of a sword, but by inviting them to a banquet table where one day all of humanity will sit together. And depending on our view of peace, oh, there's been a possession. Do we have an exorcist in the room? Depending on your vision of peace, it frames how you go about conflict. If the idea is to humiliate and dehumanize and maim your enemies, because at the end of the day, having them weak is really important, then by all means, find your enemies and humiliate them and maim them, because one day you'll have victory over them. But for Christians, we don't get to do that, because our vision of peace is that one day all of humanity will be brothers and sisters and we will sit at the same table. And if they're missing eyes and arms and legs, if we've maimed and humiliated and dehumanized them, then sitting at the same table as brothers and sisters is going to be a really awkward family meal. So how we understand peace is that how we deal with conflict has to be done in a way which doesn't dehumanize and humiliate and maim and hurt others. If the common table is the end goal of the Christian approach to conflict, it makes those things totally counterproductive. So some of you this week are already sitting here going, this is all sounding a little quaint and twee and kumbaya. So we're going to like get things a little bit messy by looking deeper into Jesus' vision of peace. Um, Last week, we touched on a few of Jesus' greatest hits. Blessed are the peacemakers, love your enemy, pray for those who persecute you, and don't take an eye for an eye, but turn the other cheek. Those solid gold, PC classics that we all love to sing. Uh, This week, we're going to get to a couple of little doozies in Matthew and Luke. Um, And it's the it's these ones here. I'm just going to read them out to you, then give you a little bit of context, because, you know, there's nothing quite like a good proof texting to make your point. 
Do not think that I have come to bring peace to earth. I have come not to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves a father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves a son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Luke 14, verse 25 and 26. Now large crowds were traveling with him, and he turned to them and said, Whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even life itself, cannot be my disciple. Large sip of water. These are the less referenced classic hits of Jesus. The B-sides, a little darker. You don't even need to backmask them, and they'll already be dark. That's a little throwback for you Pentecostals there. What's your gut reaction? What's your gut reaction to these two texts? Does anyone want to offer something to chip in. How do you feel? I don't know if you got the right book, mate. <laughs> Two days ago, I was talking about last week and um, here at Pakai North, and my friend quoted those exact passages, and she just says, I suppose it's because I'm a Catholic. I'll look at the other side of things. Excellent. Oh, you're making me work. I get the mother-in-law bit. (laughs) However, now I am a mother-in-law. Not so sure. Um, To be honest, I don't like it. It's simple as that. Anyone else? Is there anyone who's sick of sissy Jesus who like kind of likes that? No? Okay. Sometimes he does seem a bit nice. Um, so context, bit of context. Um, so for the first one, uh, Jesus is sending out his disciples and describing to them that the good news of the kingdom is going to be met with opposition. Basically, what seems like good news to some people seems like terrible news to everybody else. It's like if you announce uh, taxing big business. That seems like great news to everyone who's not big business, but terrible news to people who are big business and who benefit from it. He's saying this upside-down kingdom thing is going to be met with opposition, and sometimes the opposition is going to come from those close to you. The second one There's all of these people gathering around him, hoping that he's going to be the Messiah that is going to overthrow Rome and beat the snot out of everyone. And so everyone's jostling to try and work out, if this guy becomes the new king, then maybe I can be his right-hand person. Maybe I can benefit from this somehow. Maybe my life can get a whole lot richer and a whole lot better. And Jesus is going, you don't understand. I'm going to the cross 
And unless you're willing to follow me there, that is the only way that we're going to see victory. It's not by overthrowing and overpowering and, powering and dominating, but actually giving over our lives. The hate your mother bit. Let's get to that. Some of you don't need any encouragement. <laughs> not me. There's two interpretive possibilities here. And again, we're rushing this week, so you're just going to have to bear with me. But the first one, and these, these can both be true, but the first one is this idea of hyperbole for effect. This wouldn't have been quite as shocking to its original hearers, perhaps, as it would be to us, because hyperbole was a, cor- a common rhetorical device, which just basically means, you know when people use all caps on the internet? That's kind of, kind of common back then as well, that this whole idea of exaggerating an opinion to make your point, um, that got used a lot. So basically one way of reading this is just to go, what Jesus is doing is saying, compared to your love for God, your love for your mum and dad shouldn't even come close. Now, there's a danger in separating those things, but we'll get to that another week. But you can kind of see how the hyperbole makes the point that if our loyalty is to anything other than God, and again, this is like singing from the songbook of Israel, that loyalty and fidelity and obedience to God comes above all things. The second way is that Jesus really meant it, but not, in the, not quite in the same way that we would initially take it. So I want to describe to you two, really quickly two um, features of Israel in first century Palestine. So back in the day where the Bible's talking about. The first one is the kinship system. The kinship system was this really complex, highly codified um, arrangement for how families are supposed to operate. And within Israel... Um, there was no such thing as a nuclear family. You didn't like move out and have mum and dad and then 2.3 children and their own house um, with a small backyard. Like that just didn't exist. If you um, got married, you would build, you would spend your engagement time as a, as a man with a hammer and nails building an extension onto your dad's property so that you could bring your wife in so she could hang out with her mother-in-law heaps. Like, that's how, it was wonderful, a wonderful, wonderful experience. That's how the whole thing worked. Families, cousins, and uh, mums and dads, and grandmas, and like, everyone had to stick together because there weren't small partitions of land like we have now. And society, families were way, way too vulnerable to be left um, and tiny isolated units, they needed to pull resources. And, but what that meant was there's all of these rules and codes of ethics and ways of being about how to keep these family groups together. It's kind of this circle the wagons motif of, you know, bind together to protect this family unit and keep it safe. And then together, we won't be vulnerable to the outside world. Protect the familiar. And... That came with all kinds of obligations to all kinds of people. You can't just tell your mother-in-law to get lost on moving to um, London. Like, that wasn't a possibility or an option. Um, Your obligations to elders and to men in particular, the patriarchy, patriarchy was the center of this entire system. 
for keeping the patriarch, the man that was in charge of the family at the time, all honor and all respect and all dignity went up to that person there. And then there was this kind of like delineated like stratas below that of who actually got looked after and who actually got cared for. And as long as you kind of stayed within the system, you were kind of okay. You might not have had dignity, you might not have had rights, you might not have had a voice, but you had food for the most part. And so this system kept everybody okay, except if you weren't everybody. <laughs> Secondly was this honor-shame thing. Um, does someone want to have a crack at describing an honor-shame culture? Does anyone come from an honor-shame culture? That wasn't a joke. Lots of people will come from an honor-shame culture because lots of countries still operate from honor-shame cultures. Does anyone want to have a crack at describing an, an honor-shame culture? You're just leaving me to do all the work. You do pay me, but still, I protest. Okay, so an honor-shame culture is basically that um, all of life, look, what we would kind of, like money is our economy. That's kind of like the thing that makes the world go round for us. Honor and shame is their economy. So families and the status of families and individuals and nations and all these things worked on essentially not providing offense. So the worst thing you could do is not lose your wallet. The worst thing you could do is to offend someone who could then hold that over you. Um, so an un- honor shame culture operates on every transaction either gives honor to one person or shame to them. And the idea is to make sure that you're in the pockets of the powerful because they can protect you and keep you safe. And so within a family unit, um, all honor flows up to the patriarch who sits at the top, all dignity is given to them, and then they kind of distribute that down. But if you offend them, if you shame them, if you do something that brings shame on the family, then the family's status goes down in society and your status means that you get kicked out of the family. Now, again, this is a land with no social security. So it's not like, oh, I had to leave home. Fine, mum and dad. I'll just build my own career and, like, set myself up. You don't get to do that. If you are shamed, if you are isolated, if you are kicked out of your family, you are cut off. No one is going to look after a shamed person because to do so would be a shame on the family they got kicked out of. So you're incredibly vulnerable. To love your father and mother in this scenario is not just um, some gooey feelings that you feel towards them. In fact, you, to love your mother and father mean, doesn't mean you have any, necessarily have any feelings of affection at all. Loving father and mother in a kinship system means that you are playing the game correctly. That you have a total commitment to the kinship unit above everything else. And that you refuse to compromise its security or bring shame upon it. But here's where we run into trouble. Because in Jesus' eyes, the kingdom's role of being good news to the poor, bringing ostracized outsiders in, and protecting the vulnerable clashed with the kinship and honor-shame systems. So giving dignity, the kinship system and honor-shame did not care about the dignity of all. It cared about protecting those with inside your kinship unit. And so to go out of your way to associate with people who have been shamed is to hate your father and mother. To spend your family's food, 
which is in a precarious nation, in a precarious situation, on someone who was outside of your kinship unit was to risk the livelihood of the kinship unit and brought shame. In tandem, kinship and honor shame did an incredibly good job of maintaining social coherence and security. It nourished the well-being of most people. Most people. But if you fell outside the system, through illness or poverty or deformity and disability, through confrontations with power, through just bad luck, all kinds of things could push you outside of the fold. And once that happened, you were extremely vulnerable. If you're a woman and you got pushed outside of your family because you brought shame upon them, your two choices are pretty much death or prostitution. If you contract leprosy, you don't see your family ever again. You are outside and you go and live in a leper colony with lepers until you die. No one is obliged to help you. No one is obliged to care for you. No one is obliged to give you love. That's it. You're out. Jesus knew the vulnerability all too well because of this. The boring bit that our honkies skip in the Bible. Oh, honkies is like a New Zealandism for white people. <laughs> we don't read genealogies. Who's studied, who's studied this before in your daily Bible reading? Who skips over it? Yeah. I don't know about indigenous folk here, but Māori don't. Māori read the whakapapa. They read the genealogy because you, can, you know so much about a person through knowing their story. There are a few standouts in here, but you won't see them because it's this massive big block of text <laughs> that you're not going to read. But there are three names and then one reference in there that to anyone who reads genealogies, this would have stood out. There are four women referenced here in Matthew's version of Jesus' genealogy. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and the wife of Uriah, who does have a name, but just didn't get it here, Bathsheba. Tamar was a childless, childless widow who posed as a, as a prostitute by the side of the road to seduce her father-in-law, Judah, who had reneged on his responsibility under the law of Leverite marriage to, con- to continue his family's line. So basically, without this child, she would be an outcast within her own family and be vulnerable. So she takes the radical step of pretending to be a prostitute. This is what she has to get to. She has to pretend to be a prostitute to seduce her father-in-law to be able to stay safe. Rahab, another prostitute in Jericho, who mysteriously got visited by a bunch of scouts who were scouting Jericho. She shelters the spies who came to see her as a prostitute. Men's sexuality, it doesn't matter so much, but don't lose your virginity, woman. That's the story of sexuality within the Old Testament. She ends up in Jesus' line. Ruth, a young Moabite or foreign woman, a hated Moabite, 
was widowed and childless and poor, and she joins her aged mother-in-law, Naomi, in the struggle for survival in the patriarchal environs of Bethlehem. She, she secures safety through a husband after crawling under his blanket and spending the night with him on a threshing floor. Now, they didn't necessarily have sex, but what she does is, is she put herself in a position where she gave a man the option to basically care for her and look after her. That was her only, mode, her only pathway to safety. Bathsheba, a beautiful woman who is the object of David's lust, she just got taken, and her husband got sent to the, to the front line and killed. He commits adultery and kills the husband, and then she gets brought into David's family. A king. This is like David Weinstein on steroids, like Harvey Weinstein on steroids. This is, this is a king. She had no, you, don't, you can't deny a king. She just got taken and brought into his family. All of these women who were in incredibly precarious situations, why? Because of the kinship system and because of honor shame. Mary, Jesus' mom, was pregnant before she married Joseph. She easily could have been cast. Joseph could have protested and had her cast out. And she probably would have had Jesus while being a prostitute. Why? The kinship system. On a shame. Doing the work of the kingdom, touching lepers, eating and drinking with Gentile tax collectors and Samaritans, being generous in a way that might conflict with the priorities of your family. All of these things brought shame on your clan, which is to hate your family. If you did these things, your mother and father would say, why do you hate us? How could you do this to us? To care for those who fell outside the system would mean inviting enormous levels of conflict with those that you depended on for survival. But in Jesus' eyes, peace isn't just the absence of conflict. It's the presence of justice. And it is here that Jesus' description of the kingdom shocked its hearers. The kingdom resisted status quo. He knew from his own family situation, because he would have known his genealogy, how vulnerable the system leaves people. Sometimes making peace means confronting systems that do violence. Jesus' allegiance to the dignity of all puts him at crossroads to polite society. And this is an issue for those of us who are raised with niceness as the primary Christian virtue. The appearance of peace is not as important as the prevention of violence. If you explore church's history with domestic violence alone, Over and over and over again, the appearance of peace and playing happy families goes and protecting the patriarchs goes over and above seeing justice and dignity given to all. Are we, are, we're finished? Okay, hello. We have to close, but um, some of you might have read the Martin Luther King 
piece that I posted on Facebook this week before this. But I'm just going to read um, another piece by Damon Young from a website called Very Smart Brothers. Um, it's from an extract from a piece he wrote called Polite White People Are Useless. And uh, this, this is... Please don't click it. Um, <laughs> this is... It's kind of shocking. And if you're shocked by this, I just ask that... Oh. That you listen. Do you want to play with a pen? Um, of course, these are not all bad people. They're just so goddamn inert. And that inertia is dangerous. It's unwise to mistake their lack of movement with futility. Because this type of idling, this type of idling does make a difference. Just the wrong kind of difference. It can be seductive and sublime. Who doesn't want to believe that love bombs are enough to devastate hate? Who wouldn't want to know that good manners win if the manners are good enough? Think about how much less stress battling white supremacy and police brutality would induce if all you needed to do to defeat it was drink a bottle of Pepsi. Ultimately, this laser focus on niceness and decorum is just a way of policing behavior. Politeness in the face of violence and terror is a privilege exclusive to them. They, don't, they just don't have as much to lose if everyone stays polite and kind and sober. If things happen to change while we're nice, as flip to each other, then great. If not, well, great too, because it's still Wednesday. It's still Wednesday. And the point that's been made here is that not disrupting systems, not fighting violence wherever we find it, is a privilege that some of us have that others don't. That ultimately, it's still Monday tomorrow for us if nothing happens on Manus. That if racism still exists for most of us, it's still Monday tomorrow. And that sometimes it takes conflict to make peace. Not dehumanizing, violent, domineering conflict, but difficult conversations and difficult stands. And sometimes it means that we're going to get placed in a position where people will say, why do you hate us? And sometimes even our own families. For those of you who have come out within a conservative family may have heard those words. Why do you hate us doing this to us? Um, we're out of time. And I know this has been a very chewy <laughs> piece with very little interaction and very little back and forth. Um, but you can blame the Menace Island protest for that. But we might tease some of this out this week on Facebook or um, chat a bit more about it next week. But um, we've got lots of time next week, so much time. We're going to go from like 10 to about 4, 15, just to make up for it. Um, if it's disturbed you, that's okay. If I've offended you, that's okay. Um, not as in that doesn't matter, but as in I, un- I, understand, I understand that. Um, but we can talk some more. Um, we're going to eat and drink together this morning. Um, and this is a fam. This is a family meal, and we might disagree about lots of things here. But Jesus is what binds us together. So, 
Um, I guess because I'm leaving you in a place where you don't get to throw shoes and say stuff back, um, I understand that I have a lot of power with the microphone and you might feel really disempowered through today, but I'm totally open to chatting with people after the service if you'd like to, or if you'd like to email or Facebook message me, that's totally fine as well, and we can chat some more. I hope that's okay. Loving God, I thank you for this community. I thank you for the way it challenges me, um, the way it provokes me, the way it calls out my privilege, calls out my apathy, calls out my addiction to niceness and being liked because it's so easy for me to be addicted to that. And I pray that for me and for those of us here who are like me, you might keep challenging us to seek justice and not just an absence of conflict and to realize that if we're all going to be brothers and sisters, if we're all going to eat together with you, that we need to repent not just of the things that we've done, but the things that we have failed to do. And we thank you for Jesus and the fact that he, what, what he was willing to do, the price that he was willing to pay to show us what it is to love justice and to walk humbly. Be with us now. Be with the men on Manus. Please bring justice. Bring an end to the violence that is being done to them actively and by neglect. We pray this in Jesus' name. Thank you for him.